The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome to the Monday edition as we try to bring you the most important stories of the day here. And in Washington, it has a lot to do with the government shutdown looming less than a week off. This is Friday now we're talking about. There was a hope that over the weekend, a plan would emerge. Sunday night, we were told, it did not happen. If you're following along on our home game, the government begins shutting down Friday and would be totally shut the following Friday, March 1 and March 8. We're going to talk to Jack Fitzpatrick about this a little bit later on this hour as the uh, Dear Colleague letters start flying again. As we also uh, pick up the pieces coming out of South Carolina, this is what we're going to focus on for the next little bit here, and a 20-point blowout for Donald Trump, who has now swept all of the early states. This has never happened before. I know you thought it was going to happen because everyone predicted it, but let's just stop down for a moment. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and yes, the Virgin Islands. All for Donald Trump, unprecedented in a contested primary. We have never seen this before. And so now Nikki Haley is hearing what she has been fearing that the money might be going away. The headline on the terminal, billionaire GOP donors pivot to Congress as Haley run fades. We're talking about the Koch brothers here. Americans for Prosperity Action had spent tens of millions trying to create a real challenge to Donald Trump here by way of Nikki Haley. And as we are reporting now, the political network created by the billionaire industrialist announcing that it's suspending its support for Nikki Haley, and it's going down ballot. House and Senate races, that's where we start our conversation with Mark Niquette, reporting for Bloomberg, national politics and government reporter. He's the man on the trail, and it's great to see you, uh, Mark, after another primary weekend. We'll remind everybody that a week from tomorrow is Super Tuesday. Nikki Haley says she's in for the duration, at least through next week. Mark, is that what you expect? That's what she's telling us. I mean, presidential candidates only get out of races uh, when the money dries up and they can't keep the lights on, not when they're necessarily mm -hmm. losing. Um, so she's she's pledged to stay in the race until Super Tuesday. Give these states, you know, these 21 states that are voting here in the next 10 days a chance to vote. Um, and we'll, we'll see. I guess she'll, she'll probably have enough money to, to stay in through that point. But uh, as you said, mm -hmm. if, if uh, the donors keep uh, uh, leaving her now, deciding that she can't ultimately win or they don't want to keep funding her campaign, she won't just have the money to continue after that. How important is uh, the Coke money going away here? I feel funny asking you that, Mark, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think every little bit is important. I mean, this this was a source of funding for her campaign that, uh, again, was was sustaining her, even though she wasn't winning any elections. Um, so not having that access to that money, I think, you know, 
one, it, it will be less money that she has available, but it could also signal to other donors that, hey, this is not a good investment anymore. You know, maybe I should pull my yeah. my money as well. Uh, Nikki Haley's got events scheduled in the coming days. You'll probably be at some of them if I know you, Mark Niquette, Michigan, Minnesota, Colorado, and Utah. What is she actually trying to accomplish on Super Tuesday, having not won a state yet? Yeah, I think she's she's trying to hold out uh, to be the alternative in case Trump, uh, for whatever reason, is not able to continue, or if at some point down in in the process here, you know, he's he's mm-hmm. not able to be the nominee. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear at this point she's she's not going to win enough delegates to, um, you know, to be the nominee. But I think the strategy is to win enough delegates to be relevant and be sort of the alternative in case Trump some for some again for yeah. some whatever reason you know, can't continue as a nominee. Is there a state or are there a couple of states she's targeting, though, for for actual W's on Super Tuesday to say, hey, I can actually do this. You can't come in second place forever, Mark. And I realize that she's got some delegates. She could drive them all the way to the convention if she wants. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there are some states. I don't know specifically, you know, what what she's targeting. But, you know, states in the, in the Western U.S., for example, um, and, and states that have you know, more liberal rules in terms of who can participate in, in the primary where she might do better. You know, for example, um, she was able to do better in, in New Hampshire than South Carolina because Democrats were able to participate in the Republican primary. So I think the thinking is that she could attract, you know, some Democrats or independents to play in the, the Republican primary in some of these Super Tuesday states that could help elevate her. But again, she's not shown the ability to um, you know, actually win these states. You know, she, I don't think That's she's gotten problem. higher than 43% in any of these primaries. Yeah, it's uh, it's really something. Mark, I appreciate your joining us. Uh, stay in touch as we get into Super Tuesday. We've got more to ask Mark Niquette. Find him on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. He's an important part of our campaign coverage. Now, as we add the voice of Jim Ellis, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Ellis Insight, the founder of the election analysis service. Jim, it's good to see you. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio uh, and on YouTube as well. We've got a lot of folks here watching and listening, wondering what happens next. I want to go down ballot with you, but before we do that, your insights following Super Tuesday, or, or South Carolina rather, and heading for Super Tuesday. Is this actually Nikki Haley's last stand next week? Well, thanks so much for having me. You think it would be. Uh, she loses basically 60-40 in her home state. Remember, before a Republican electorate that had propelled her to being governor twice. Um, mm-hmm. I was amused a little bit that, that your earlier reporter indicated that Donald Trump was the incumbent. I, I don't think that's the case in South Carolina. So uh, How about that? some people are claiming that Trump didn't do as well in the suburbs as he should have around Charleston and Columbia. Uh, but still, 60-40 in the other person's home state, that's a pretty good indication that this race is over. So we'll see. We have Michigan yes, tomorrow, indeed. and that's another mm-hmm. uh, indication for both Donald Trump and President Biden uh, as to uh, where we might be headed. And we should have official nominees here very early in March, if not by Super Tuesday, then certainly by March 19th when Ohio and yes, Illinois sir. and uh, Arizona vote. Yeah, it's interesting, Jim. We're all looking at Joe Biden uh, more closely than the Republican contest in Michigan tomorrow, maybe because there just isn't that much to watch when it comes to Joe Biden. And this is uh, a very 
special circumstance that could present a problem for him nationally when it comes to Arab American and Muslim American voters. But as far as the the Republican primary is concerned, and like I said, I want to move down ballot with you, but when you listen to Nikki Haley last night, does she have a point in Iowa and New Hampshire? Trump won with about half the vote. Uh, We saw what he won with in South Carolina. If you can't win your whole party, how do you win the general? Well, that's pretty common. This is a contested race, after all. Remember how many candidates began running here. It's it's yeah. not as if you're unopposed for re-election, really as President Biden is or, or as most presidents have been in the past. So this is an open election. And the fact that he's doing as well as he has, I, I think, is an indication that he's in very strong shape headed into a general election with the United Republican Party. I mean, okay. if, no yeah. one really has had as strong as internal numbers over the course of his term in office and post as Donald Trump has. So I think he's in good shape. Ellis Insight right now on Bloomberg as we look to Super Tuesday, not presidential, but let's look at some of these Senate races. Uh, Jim, starting with California, this is a big one. A lot of money spent, a lot of media and a lot of attention here. Adam Schiff is looking like he's in good pla- uh, uh, in a good place going into it. He's certainly spent some money. But it's a jungle primary, as you can explain to our audience here. This has almost as much to do with second place as it does first, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does. So a jungle primary means everybody's on the same ballot. And three states use this Mm -hmm. uh, for their primary elections. California, of course, being one. It began in Louisiana, but they're going to change and go back to a partisan primary. And uh, Washington is the other state that uses this. So everybody's on the same ballot. Mm -hmm. And regardless of uh, political party or percentage attained, the first two finishers here in California will advance to the November general election. Adam Schiff appears to be set in position one, but there's a real dogfight in petition two. And it's one of the more unique campaigns we've ever seen in American history because you have both Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, Congresswoman Porter from uh, Irvine in Orange County. They're the two leading Democrats and they're actually advertising to help Steve Garvey or detract from Steve Garvey coming in second place. Remember Steve Garvey, the former uh, famous baseball player running for the Republicans. And they're, by claiming he's too conservative, and this obviously is a signal to conservative Republicans to vote for him. So Schiff wants Garvey in second place, and therefore he doesn't have to deal with a (laughs) double Democratic general election, which would be highly competitive and highly expensive. He wants a Republican next to him uh, in the general. And Katie Porter is advertising to try to to knock Garvey out of second place by by claiming uh, uh, he won't support Donald Trump, so you have to go for uh, this Eric Early, and so to help propel her into second place. It's really a fascinating situation in California that will be decided on March the 5th. This is incredible maneuvering here. Before we move to another state, Jim, uh, is it is it more likely that we will have a Democrat and a Republican then if they're both spending in that direction? Polling looks like Garvey is on the move. Uh, I, if the polls are correct, but they're all very close, so it could go any way, and it all depends on turnout. Uh, but if I think there's a good chance right now that Garvey does get second place, and, and that would virtually elect Adam Schiff in November. Fascinating. And that's going to be part of what we're talking about on Super Tuesday. It's not just presidential. Uh, Shortly thereafter, uh, Jim, we move to Ohio. That's the 19th of March. Of course, Sherrod Brown, uh, who hasn't had to get on the campaign trail in a while. Uh, We're looking at a three-way Republican race. What do we need to know? 
Well, that's an extremely important race for the Republicans. And this is a critical election cycle for the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. They have to take advantage of a favorable map. And by that, I mean, of the 34 Senate races, the Democrats have to protect or defend 23. The Republicans only 11, and they really don't have very many uh, uh, vulnerable seats. The Democrats think they've got a shot at Ted Cruz in Texas. I don't think that'll be the case at the end of the day. It's really not the year to, a presidential year is not the win, the year for a Democrat to win in Texas. So it really comes down to Republicans not only getting to 50 or to 51 to get a bare majority, they need to, to pretty much run the table and get to 52, 53, 54 to protect themselves against more unfavorable maps coming in 2026 and 2028. As we all know, senators have six-year terms, and every two years, a third of the Senate is up. So this year, it really helps the Republicans, and they have to take advantage of this map. Ohio becomes one of the key states for them. The West Virginia race without Senator Manchin in that race looks like it's in the bag. So yep. we're really at effectively 50-50 yep. right now from an electoral standpoint. Wow. Ohio, Montana being so, the next two that have to go for the Republicans for them to take advantage yeah. of this. In that Republican primary in Ohio, you have a three-way three race. The Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, State Senator Matt Dolan, whose family owns part of the Cleveland Guardians baseball team, and the third candidate who both Former President Trump and Senator J.D. Vance has endorsed uh, the um, the businessman. Oh, my name's I'm escaping on his first name, uh, Marino, uh, that uh, will have a three way race to yeah, win Bernie that nomination. Marino. Bernie, mm -hmm. thank you so much. And uh, he is uh, all three of them. The polls are very close in that race. It's a three way race. And it's a. Um, uh, I think, frankly, though, whichever one of the three wins, the Republicans are actually going to be in pretty good shape. I think each of those candidates mm -hmm. would be strong enough to go up against Sherrod Brown. And and really, from Senator that? Brown's standpoint, he's won tough elections in Ohio before, but the state has really moved to the right since his last election in 2018. Yes, and yep. We have to remember, these Senate terms are so long that the last time people like Senator Brown and Senator John Tester in Montana were on the ballot was 2018. That was a good right, Democratic year, a wave, most people thought, for the Democrats. We're and so they were able to win now. in those years. And then the previous time, they had 2012. What was happening in 2012? They had Barack Obama on the ballot running for re-election. They don't have that this time. And this year is going to be a much more difficult time for both Senator Brown and Senator Tester mm -hmm. in those two critical states. Fascinating. This is why we wanted to talk to Jim Ellis in a real seminar as we look down ballot here, specifically to the Senate. You had the wild card of Maryland and Larry Hogan, and we've got a real conversation. Jim, I hope that you'll come talk to us on the regular here uh, throughout the balance of this cycle. I'm really happy to have you on today and, and bring your expertise to our viewers and listeners. He's the founder of Ellis Insight Election Analysis Service. Jim Ellis, thank you, sir for being part of the conversation today. Keep this all in mind as we go into Super Tuesday. It's not just Donald Trump and Nikki Haley we're talking about here with massive implications when it comes to, yes, the balance of power on Capitol Hill. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The Dear Colleague letters are starting to fly, which is never a good sign. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for being with us on Balance of Power as we keep our eyes on Midnight Friday. This is when the government's set to start shutting down here. And, well, we've been talking about it for weeks on this program. While many folks had their attention on other matters, it's still here, and there's no deal. Lawmakers will get back Wednesday, at least the House, so they'll have three days to put this together, and uh, that would be a land speed record. Chuck Schumer out with the dear colleague last night, accusing Republicans of playing politics with people's lives and Boy, it seems like we've seen this movie before. Jack Fitzpatrick, seen it a lot of times. He's with us from Bloomberg Government uh, and keeping an eye on things here on the Hill. Jack, I'm sure you're in for a couple of weeks. It's Friday followed by Friday, right? Two different deadlines. Um, There was talk of a deal emerging last night that we might wake up Monday morning to having some kind of a deal on spending. It did not happen. Was that real? Was that media talk? It never seemed particularly realistic. It was floated out there. It was reported in a couple places. We had heard that some people involved in the negotiations hoped to have something by Sunday night. But even late last week, when it started coming out, uh, two staffers from the Speaker's office said, no, that's not a plan. That's not something that's going to happen. So there's a bit of a back and forth on expectations Mm -hmm. setting. Uh, You then saw the Dear Colleague letter from Chuck Schumer come out late yesterday saying, we (laughs) hope to have a deal Sunday, but House Republicans are dragging this out. The Speaker then said, it's Democrats who are introducing new issues that weren't even in their own bills initially. There's there's some mudslinging going on. Uh, I think when you hear of expectations of, oh, here's when it's going to come together, here's what we know is going to happen, you have to take it with a grain of salt. They are very likely going to take this up to the last minute if they do succeed in avoiding a shutdown. Yes. And there are maybe some, some games being played behind the scenes on expectation setting. So let's talk options here, and, and we can remind everyone that this is not the full government. This is four uh, departments or four spending bills that would be expiring on Friday. And these are the easy ones, right? If you yeah. can't figure that out, the week later is going to be really something. The Speaker of the House has vowed to not do another continuing resolution, a short-term deal, although apparently there is talk of doing that. When will we know he's out of options that we either do a CR or, or close it down? That's another last-minute issue because we've heard from the Speaker, we've heard from others in House Republican leadership. It came out from Tom Emmer a little while back. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not doing another continuing resolution. But if they don't have a deal that they can enact and they're not doing a CR, then it's a question of how long do you shut the government down. Yes. And that's what really builds pressure, and people crack (laughs) under pressure sometimes. So, uh, look, it is very notable that House Republicans have have said, absolutely not, we do not want another CR. Uh, But that's the the escape hatch, if nothing else works anyway. So it's it's going to be a last-minute question of do they need to buy a little more time? And it's worth keeping in mind that House Republicans in particular do not want to vote for a stopgap measure. And that is a factor that that could lead us into a partial shutdown. They do hate that. Um, A lot of this, we're told, is coming down to policy writers. Is that still the case? Could that change 
when they come back Wednesday? That seems to be the case, and it's been pretty consistent, that once they got the basic parameters of how much they're going to spend on defense, on non-defense, on each bill, yeah. uh, it was a matter of policy writers. There were a ton of policy writers in the House Republican measures. As I said, the Speaker then accused Democrats of adding things that they hadn't included in their own bills. Mm -hmm. But generally what I've heard is a lot of things were not able to be negotiated by the people who are supposed to write the bills, the subcommittee chairs, and that was sent up to the full committee chairs and to leadership to hash out yeah. uh, a great number of remaining policy rider issues wow. uh, that cover a lot of ground. So this is the granular stuff. Big picture is a meeting tomorrow, apparently at the White House. Joe Biden's invited uh, Mike Johnson to come back with the other leaders. McConnell, Schumer, uh, Jeffries will be there. What's the point? if we've come this far without a breakthrough? We're at a point now where pressure is a major part of the negotiations and the news cycle. That may be more of a factor on Ukraine funding than funding the government. But it, it, like, I, like I mentioned, when you have a number of things that cannot be negotiated by the people who usually write these bills and it's yeah. kicked up to the top, mm -hmm. uh, there's you, you could call it a staring contest, a game of chicken. Uh, the pressure is building on the toughest issues. And this meeting may not be glad handing, but they'll, they'll get a sense of where they agree, where they disagree, okay. who has an advantage and who has a disadvantage. Then they come out to the sticks, as they say in the business. There'll be a stake out in the driveway. Those microphones will be set up. Does Mike Johnson walk out and badmouth Joe Biden or say that we actually see eye to eye on some things? It would be harder for him to say he sees eye to eye with Joe <laughs> it Biden would. right Harder now. politically, you mean. Uh, he's got to sell a lot to conservatives who, who do not want to deal with Joe Biden. It's a, he's in a tough spot. He, he's got a lot of members of his conference who do not want to vote for a stopgap. Mm -hmm. They don't want to vote for anything that could get past the Senate and get Biden's signature. Uh, so, you know, a kumbaya moment is not in the cards politically yeah. for the speaker. Well, that's going to be a riot. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. That is confirmed, right? Did they all accept the invite? They're going? Uh, they're all invited. Okay. It would be unusual if anybody skipped But that. Johnson's going is the point. Yes, Everyone yes. else is just there to bear witness. Biden, Am I right? Johnson that's the, the point. two keys. Yes. Now, I don't know if they're going to talk about anything else, like, say, Ukraine. Uh, maybe this is a very specific uh, topic meeting here, but this is the other matter. As President Zelensky, who's been on quite a tour, speaking of pressure lately, tells us that 31,000 Ukrainians have died in this war, uh, the Ukrainian members of the military. Uh, and we're seeing this kind of last-minute, full-court press from NATO members uh, including Poland, was on the air with us, their foreign minister, making the point here last week. It was in Washington, D.C. There's no sign of anything changing here, is there? Not yet, but that's where the pressure comes in because there's been there there've been little bits of movement. Uh, it's been pretty quiet in the last week or so. But when you saw the the centrist House members led by Brian Fitzpatrick say, "Well, yeah. we have a, a pared down proposal," uh, look, it doesn't look like they're about to attach something on Ukraine to one of these government funding bills. It's not m moving that quickly. But the pressure is building. You see, uh, swing district members feel like they have to put something out there. Uh -huh. it, it's a pressure campaign. I wouldn't say it's a, an absolute stasis. Uh, there has not been a lot of movement, not a lot of negotiating, but as the pressure builds, that's when you look for cracks and, and yeah, slight right. changes in people's I'm positions. glad you mentioned that. This brings us to the idea of a discharge petition that would be very rare, and we're told, stop talking about it because that never happens. But it seems like it might this time. To see Fitzpatrick, no relation to you, uh, on Sunday morning television, sitting there with a Republican talking about this happening. By the way, the flannel, I guess it's Maine. Um, 
it makes you wonder if we're getting closer to something here. Does Mike Johnson secretly hope that they do this and he doesn't have his fingerprints on it? That is one way in which a discharge petition is sometimes useful. That, that is probably the most obvious way for a discharge petition to work uh-huh. is if leadership isn't necessarily entirely opposed to putting a bill forward, but they have to go to the opponents and say, look, I had no choice. Yes, there sure. are other ways. I think maybe even more important is if there are promises by Democrats to back him up, if there's a motion to vacate the chair and mm-hmm. not allow his speakership to be kicked out yeah, right. it, because of this, that would relieve a lot of pressure on him and move him toward uh, potentially favoring Ukraine. Huh. So those are those are two big questions there with regard to the pressure on Mike Johnson. Then the Senate would have to, I guess, handle or deal with whatever they sent back over there. And I bring that up because I'm just compelled by the headline that John Thune has decided to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, uh, This is about as close to Mitch McConnell as you can get here in the chain of command. And I, I wonder how important that is when we've seen the hand of Donald Trump impact what's happening in the House to this extent. Yeah, uh, it it is a sign of the strength of Donald Trump in Republican politics that if you were harsh, harshly critical of him following January 6th, now you see those same people coming back to endorse Donald Trump. He's had a huge effect on these Ukraine negotiations. He hasn't necessarily scuttled the possibility of sending further aid to Ukraine, but he looms large over these talks and over anything else on Capitol Hill. The question of Republicans looking to Trump saying, what exactly does he want to do? Is he going to come after me for this vote? That is one of the key questions in the Capitol. Sure. Now, Donald Trump's going to the border this week. Apparently, Joe Biden is, too. He's not going to let anything get through on the border while Joe Biden's running for re-election, is he? I mean, that's, again, where you look to the centrists, you look to something pared down. He is largely responsible for the death of that bipartisan negotiated measure led by James Lankford, who kind of got thrown under the bus. Mm -hmm. Could there be something smaller uh, focused on a remain in Mexico policy like Fitzpatrick brought up? That's not necessarily out of the question. But yes, the, the former president managed to basically kill a major piece of legislation, and it's going to be tough to see anything broad on immigration and the border because of that. That's for sure. And the Senate leadership is starting to apparently come around on this now. That's one of the three Johns, I guess. I don't think Mitch McConnell is ever going to endorse Donald Trump. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. That's uh, Trump is the, effectively the head of the Republican Party right now. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lot of support for Trump among people who might have surprised you. Well, I'll tell you, we talk about politics a lot. We talk about uh, the appropriations process with you because that's your specialty. But you're a generalist as well. You're a political junkie. You're watching all this stuff. Imagine a world, and I keep hearing in this newsroom, there are two things that political journalists pine for every four years, or maybe more often. One of them is a contested convention. The other is a discharge petition. Of course, that could come anytime. Are we going to be in a world, pretend we're not on the air right now, where we get both this year? Uh, oh, man. Wouldn't that's, that be something? That's tough to this predict. Is, well, the number of things that have happened or, or could happen this year that are so, so unusual. <laughs> I'll, I'll admit, I'm a little more focused on the possibility of a shutdown that yes, occurs during the State of the Union. Right. So, so maybe now, I, look, I've asked a lot of folks this. We have less than a minute. Would that delay the speech? Does Joe Biden go back, do it from the White House? It would be a massive embarrassment to cancel the State of the Union because you shut the government down. I have to think they would stick to it, and Biden would relish the opportunity to give a joint address and blame Republicans. They can pay to keep the lights on in the chamber for that, right? Yeah, Congress The cameras will work. 
Can you imagine the booing and the heckling on that night as well? Are you going to be there for it? Uh, I don't think I'll be in the room, but I'll be around. All right, meet me in Stat I'll Hall. I'll be there. <laughs> let's let's get you on. We have special coverage that night, uh, State of the Union, as well as Super Tuesday. Both of them are next week. We'll find out if a shutdown coincides with a lot more to follow today on The Fastest Show in Politics. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. As we talk about how Trump decisively won South Carolina, as he's decisively won every primary contest thus far, it's worth keeping in mind, and Nikki Haley pointed to this, Joe. Yep. Roughly 40% of Republican primary voters or Republican or primary voters, as there's independents in this mix as well that mm-hmm. we should consider, are not picking him. And he's essentially an incumbent mm-hmm. Republican. That's true. If you, if you look at this from the incumbent standpoint, it might not be as impressive, I guess, to see him win all of the early states. Joe Biden's winning his as well, right. but you don't look at it because he's the president. And so it raises a question of how those primary voters may translate into general election That's voters. Right. And on that note, we want to bring in Andrew Smith now of the UNH Survey Center. He is the director there. Andrew, always great to see you and get your expertise far beyond New Hampshire, of course, a state that Trump also won. Where do those 40 percent of voters who did not vote for Trump in a primary, where are they likely to go in a general election? Well, the great majority of them are likely to go and vote for Trump in a general election, presuming that he's the candidate. Um, People have a great ability to rationalize why their party skunk is better than the other party skunk. Uh, So I imagine a lot of those voters will go to vote for Trump because they're, you know, they they don't they aren't engaged in politics that much. uh, And they're going to vote for their team. and That is the Republican Party. Uh, The biggest problem that Trump has is not that they're going to go over and vote for Biden but that they just won't show up. And turnout, I think, is really going to be the key issue in determining who wins the election this fall. It's essentially a replay of almost the last two presidential elections. And uh, uh, a turnout of a few percentage points in key states makes a difference between who wins and who loses. And if, um, say, 5% of those Republican voters who voted for Haley don't show up in November, Donald Trump will lose. So where's your head on this race, Andrew? We left... uh New Hampshire talking with you about a general election that was already beginning. It's really looking like when now you've got Trump and Joe Biden both at the border on the same day. They're now referring to each other directly. Uh, How long can this last for Nikki Haley as, you know, the potential alternative? She's she's in there just in case something goes wrong with the Trump campaign, it seems. But when does that start to look ridiculous? I think you're right that she she's in there in, in case something happens. But that means that you're campaigning uh, where you're relying on something that's completely out of your control. Uh, and that's not a good place to be in. Um, my sense is this. Uh, her campaign is really all over but the crying, to, to, to use a phrase. Uh, she can stay on until um, uh, Super Tuesday, uh, see when the money runs out. I think that's going to be the key issue. But to, to the point of your uh, your last guest, uh, that I think she is somebody who the Republican Party or kind of the mainstream of the old Republican Party is looking forward to as a, a potential candidate in 2028, presuming that uh, t- Trump is already the nominee this time around. So she can go on for a little bit more, but I, I just don't think she really has any avenue to winning the nomination 
unless something really dramatic happens to Trump. And I don't even think that's a conviction in a court case. I think it's going to have to be something, a health related thing or something that really prevents him from being able to run. So when you see polling, like some that we've conducted here at Bloomberg with Morning Consult that suggests that voters, specifically swing state voters, would be less likely to vote for Trump if he were to be convicted of a felony, you don't necessarily think that that matches reality? Uh, Well, it may match reality right now. But again, the election's a long time away and people are not in an election framework. Um, By the time the election comes around, you're going to have so much mud thrown by both of these candidates uh, that I have a feeling that both parties are just going to hold their nose and vote for the R or the D, uh, not necessarily for the candidate who's running. Um, but uh, it, it, it's really way too early. We've not seen an election like this where the nominees have been identified this early on, uh, where there's really not much uh, going to be going on between now and then, except a battle between the top two people that's just going to get uglier and uglier. And my um, maybe I, that's what I fear it's going to get, but it's not going to be something that's illuminating and a sparkling example of American democracy. We're spending time with Andrew Smith, political scientist and head of the UNH Survey Center. When we were in New Hampshire with you, Andrew, the idea was that this state was unique because of the independent vote that if Nikki Haley were to outperform anywhere, it would be here. Her campaign pointed to South Carolina in the same way. What did we learn from the, the demographic breakdown and the party breakdown in the Palmetto State here to try to gauge success and failure moving forward? Well, you know, Haley has done okay with the protest vote, essentially. You know, Trump is going to get the majority of the Republic, uh, mainstream Republicans, uh, registered Republicans. And Haley's had to rely on people who are not the, the mainstream uh, part of the party. Uh, and obviously getting 40 percent of that, frankly, is pretty good. Uh, and she got over 40 percent here in New Hampshire, which is pretty good. But it's certainly not enough to win. But I think the, the problem that we have to look at this is that Trump hasn't been able to win convincingly really anywhere. Um, he's won, uh, but he is, as you say, he's the incumbent. He should be able to win this by 80 to 90 percent like Biden is able to do against, say, a Dean Phillips. Um, yeah. What that tells me is that you've got a, a, just a deeply divided Republican Party um, that wishes it had somebody else, but it doesn't see that there is any alternative to Trump at this point. Andrew, you just mentioned that Biden has been able to secure 80 to 90 percent of the vote. Do you think he'll be able to do that in the Michigan primary tomorrow, knowing that Arab uh, American specifically there are suggesting they will be backing uncommitted instead of the president because of the issue of Gaza and, and his role in supporting Israel in that in that war effort against Hamas? Yeah, I think Biden will be fine in the primary election. There's, you know, the Arab vote is very important, but it's important in just a few places in the state and and in a very close statewide election, whether or not they show up and vote is going to be a difference. But in a a Democratic primary, I think uh, Biden has all the controls of the party establishment itself. So I think he'll win handily there in Michigan. What does it tell you uh, when you start to see the money turn here? Andrew, this is a a big headline for Nikki Haley. Koch brothers money is going down ballot, uh, which was really helping to breathe life into her ground operations specifically. She's not going to have that moving forward now. You're used to people asking you every four years when people are going to drop out. Give us the anatomy of the end of this campaign. 
Well, you stop running when the money runs out. Um, that's that's there you the are. ultimate truth of it. Uh, and I think the money is is slowing down dramatically. And, and in fact, Haley needs so much money to counter Trump. In fact, I don't even think there's an amount of money that she could spend that would really effectively counter Donald Trump because he is so well known to the electorate wow. um, and to the Republican primary electorate to convince them otherwise. I think you know, there's almost no amount of money that could make that case. Um, but she's not going to have the money just to keep the people going in her staff for too much longer. So I think that she's likely to go through Super Tuesday. She's been pretty honest by saying that, you know, she, she says she was going to be in South Carolina. She's there. She mm -hmm. said she was going to be there at mm -hmm. Super Tuesday. She's likely going to be there. But I just can't see her really practically going on much longer than that. About half of the uh, the delegates are going to be awarded on Super Tuesday. Um, and it's going to be hard for her to win just anything but a fraction of those. Andrew, we just have about a minute left with you, but it strikes me that we always knew Nikki Haley was going to be a long shot candidate. We knew that she was gaining momentum, yet we knew that Trump was still far and away ahead in pretty much every uh, poll across the board, all of which at this point seem to have proven pretty accurate. Is this the most accurate uh, election cycle you've seen in terms of polling in some time? Yeah, polling in primaries is really kind of a, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Uh, you don't know what you're going to get <laughs> because you don't know who's going to show up. Um, but this has been a, a fairly straightforward primary going for um, uh, even including the Iowa caucuses, which are really quirky. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the poll has been pretty accurate, largely because you essentially have an incumbent and people are either going to vote for the incumbent or not. Um, and and now that Haley's the only one left, it's really just the two person race. The biggest problem in, in primary polling always is who's going to show up. And I think that's one of the reasons that you see Trump's numbers overestimated a little bit. Remember this conversation a week from tomorrow. Again, that'll be Super Tuesday. Andrew Smith, great to see you post-New Hampshire. He's the director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center and a reliable voice, Kaylee, on all things politics. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, it's interesting. We talk about different topics and, and ideas throughout the course of an sure. hour. In this particular hour, they all all intersect. Yeah. We're at the point now where you cannot remove the tentacles from the campaign trail to the White House to Capitol Hill, where, of course, Donald Trump is impacting the outcome of a number of debates right now. Yeah, as he has the ear of the House Speaker Mike Johnson, and it's not really clear exactly what Mike Johnson might be thinking about the looming deadline to avoid a partial government shutdown. Correct. Come the end Has of Trump history. weighed in on that? We don't have a truth social on shutdown yet. No, a lot on the border, stand by, some though. other things. Mm -hmm. But yes, definitely stand by because, of course, the House still isn't back. 
They right. come back to town on Wednesday, and then they'll have to race over the course of just three legislative days to try to avert this. Reminding mm-hmm. everybody, this is a partial government shutdown, potentially. Just four appropriations bills are the ones that are supposed to pass to avert yeah. this. They're supposed to be the easy ones, Joe. These are the, the non-controversial other eight bills. are the hard ones. That's true, yes. Uh, so the countdown clocks will yes. be running here. And we're going to do this twice. Although if we shut it down, if we start shutting down Friday, I would submit we're going to be in much more trouble the following week. Because to your right. point, you know, doing the the HUD bill or the FDA bill is a lot less controversial than, say, the Pentagon or Right. When Justice you're talking department. defense, the big bulk of government yeah. spending on the aid, that's where it gets really tricky. But, of course, For this sure. is all tricky already. So on that note, trying to work through the trickiness is Mark Goldwine, who is joining us now from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where he is Senior Policy Director. So, Mark, how do you see this going down? What odds are you personally putting on a partial shutdown by the end of this week? Uh, I I really try not to put odds on this stuff, but it's relatively high. Uh, Remember, the shutdown would happen midnight Friday, so it really wouldn't matter until sometime on Monday. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I think it's likely we have that little shutdown and that we try to pass these individual appropriations bills and then probably a kick the can for that second set of bills so that they don't have a, a larger shutdown or a particularly long one. You're, of course, again, at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. That's uh, the name on the door, Mark. Is it possible we don't get a responsible federal budget for this entire fiscal year? Because they're talking about CR for the duration at this point. Well, it seems like we haven't had a responsible federal budget in some time. But yeah, it's possible we don't get any appropriations. I do think if they go the route of permanent continuing resolution, sort of kick the can, they're going to have to make so many adjustments to it that it'll almost look like a hybrid between a continuing resolution and an appropriations. But it is possible they can't get all their act together on the on the real true appropriations. Well, and of course, if they don't, come the end of April, that's when the 1% sequester kicks in. 1% cuts to everything across the board, defense included. And when you're talking about defense that has a significantly larger budget, that 1% is worth uh, a lot more than for other appropriations. Just Can you just <laughs> remind us, walk us through what would really happen to the government financing if that 1% sequester kicks in? What would be detrimentally affected? Well, here's the reality. A 1% sequester by itself is actually not that big a deal. And most of the agencies could bear it because they've been on the CR. The problem is sort of is twofold. The first is it's actually more than 1% right now on the non-defense side because of some weird stuff related to veterans and receipts. So it's actually more Mm -hmm. like a 5%. But the other is if we do a permanent CR, we don't actually get those 1% sequester. What we get is no sequester for defense and something closer to a 10% sequester on the non-defense. And trying to cut 10% of your budget in just half the year is just not doable. The only way is really significant rolling furloughs uh, for many of the agencies. Wow. Well, I mean, you'd think that that would be quite a deterrent, Mark, but it seems to me defense spending will be the matter that makes a difference, right? When the Hawks get a hold of this, this is going to be an ugly debate on Capitol Hill. And with defense spending, it's less the level. And it's more the, the stagnation that if you do the CRs, you right. can't actually make new choices about what contracts to end, enter into and things like that. So with the Defense Department, it's really the flexibility that matters, maybe more than the actual level of spending. Well, and of course, as, as Joe and I were 
discussing the the first week of March is going to be pretty wild because, of course, you have this March 1st deadline. You have the March 8th deadline in terms of government funding. And smashed in between, the president is supposed to be giving his State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress on March 7th, so the eve of the deadline for the bigger chunk of uh, appropriations bills that need to pass. And then just a few days after that, he's supposed to be giving his budget for the next fiscal year, when we still haven't sorted out, as Joe was alluding to, the budget for this current fiscal year. When the president outlines his policies, what should those policies look like to be more fiscally responsible? Yeah, and I also heard there's some election stuff happening in that same time that we've been yeah, worried about. Yes, indeed. Well. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, we are deeply in debt. Um, interest this year is projected to be larger than the defense budget and larger than Medicare. It's expected to be the second largest government program, which is nuts if you think about it. Uh, so I hope the president comes forward with significant deficit reduction. doesn't mean balancing the budget, doesn't mean paying off the debt, but at least getting us you know, five, eight trillion dollars. So the debt isn't growing much faster than the economy. And that's going to have to come from tax revenue, which actually this president has been pretty good about talking about. And it's going to have to come from spending cuts, which this president hasn't really talked about at all, especially in the healthcare system, where there's so much waste that I think we could cut trillions of dollars and not even really miss it. We haven't talked about raising revenues yet. Mark, is is that a joke? <laughs> well, I mean, actually, I just said the president's actually been pretty good on this issue. I, I do think he only wants to raise taxes on the 2% of Americans making over $400,000. I think it's a little silly that if we have a bad tax break, we'd want to leave it in, into effect for somebody making 399000 But this president <laughs> actually, in his last budget, put forward about $3 trillion of net tax increases, maybe even a little bit more. And I, I hope he'll put forward more this time because they got to be on the table so that we can discuss them, figure out which ones are good, which ones are bad. And ultimately, we're, we're not going to be able to solve the debt without raising substantially more revenue than than what we're projected to. Mark, just in our final minute with you, we're obviously here on Bloomberg Television and radio where both Joe and I have taken note that markets at this point don't seem that concerned about fiscal risk that may out there Fair be enough. out there. A partial uh, shutdown is not really reflected at all. It seems. What would you tell the markets about how worried they should be about fiscal conduct on Capitol Hill? Well, look, a shutdown itself, it's disruptive, but it's just not like it's not a macroeconomic activity that's going to fundamentally change the economy. And so even if I were worried about shutdown, sure. I wouldn't be worried about its effects. What I worry about is what it means for the ability of Congress and the president to solve other larger problems. Right. Our debt is as large as the economy. And if we can't even keep the lights on, how are we gonna how are we gonna solve these major issues? And if we can't solve the major issues, then we are in big trouble. And I think you're starting to see that a little bit in the interest rates. Okay, Mark, it's great to see you. Mark Goldwine at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thanks for the insights here and the fair warning, as it does look like we could in, in fact be headed for a shutdown starting Friday, mm -hmm. Kaylee, then we'll see where we are by the next Friday. This when whole laddered thing is complicated. Be made complete. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.